So I am in this phase of life where I never know if I'm in a glasses on or glasses off setting. So if I move them inadvertently, that's, what, that's why I'm moving them. I will also try not to take my shoes off, which I can always do without thinking about it behind a pulpit. Um, when I was upstate in New York, uh, in the lower Adirondacks, we used to tape sermons. We'd go around the community, we'd tape a sermon, and it would be broadcast the next Sunday, and they got stuck one week, and the same sermon broadcast for eight weeks. It was the sermon where I talked about taking off my shoes while I preached without even knowing it. And the only people who knew was the choir. The choir was behind me and up, so I was always being harassed by the choir. But by the time the eight weeks were done, the whole community knew, and I would be stopped in the shopping center. <laughs> Let's go back before that time. That was in the 80s. When I was in the 70s, living up 95, 95 wasn't, was nine, when did 95 happen? I remember Delaware Avenue in the 70s. <sighs> um, when I, in the 70s, when I was up in Warrington, Warrington, and I was a member of the Neshaminy Warwick Presbyterian Church, my husband and I both were members there. That's in Warminster. If you really know the area, you know it's in a part of Warminster called Hartsville. And we used to have a big youth group and a big touring choir that did um, praise music, the early version of praise music. We had a ball. We had youth. We were at the church all the time. Uh, different world now. Different world now. I wouldn't expect that today. But we were there. And we used to talk about different things in Bible study. And one of the things we talked about was this, the fellowship of believers, <coughs> the people whom God called together to study, to praise, to celebrate, to just be together. And the relationships that were a part of that community we called koinonia. Have you ever heard that word? We talked about the koinonia of Christ. And when you look it up in the Greek dictionaries, one of the things that koinonia means loudly is really participation participation. If you want to know something else that it can mean, talk to me after worship. I have a funny story. It's short. But koinonia is very much about participation, fellowship, sharing in together. Hold that thought. Another story. In 1980, my husband and I took two years internship at Prince, from Princeton Seminary and went down to Arkansas. I was an assistant chaplain at a Methodist college, Hendricks College. It's a great liberal arts school in Arkansas. My husband worked for the Presbytery down there. And we met a man um, who is now a professor, I think still at Oberlin College, named David Orr. He is an environmental architect. I don't think they were calling him that in the 80s, but he and his brother and a few other pioneers were trying to, do a, trying to create a sustainability project in central Arkansas Fox, Arkansas, near Shirley on the central fork of the Red River. Y'all know where that is, right? A tiny little space. They were trying to see how much they could get off this land that would not abuse the land, how much they could put back into the system. I think they ended up, before it was over, putting electricity back into the larger system. It was an awesome place. But David, had a, David comes from a Presbyterian family from western Pennsylvania. The ore name is very large. In, in the old um, the old United Presbyterian North American network. And he would always talk about what he was doing and then you'd look at him like, are you nuts? Because of all that he was doing. And he would say, why care? And then he'd say, because we're cared for. If I heard that once from him in the two years we were there, I heard it two dozen times. Why care? Because we're cared for. And when David said it, as much as 
Yeah, those are simple words. When David said it, it rang of a truth that stuck with me all these years. So koinonia, participation, and why care? Because we're cared for. Hold that thought, please, as we move to look at our scripture lesson today, which is from Luke 9, 10 to 17. So, Jesus had sent the disciples out for their first trial run without him. He had sent them out two by two. It's always better that way. It's always safer that way. There's so many reasons, two by two. And he sent them out to preach and teach and heal, and they had come back, and things had gone well. And, and when we start our scripture lesson at the point that they came back, and you can imagine the energy with which they came back, right? That energy is there at the beginning of this lesson. Listen to what happens afterwards. On their return, we read, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. I'm sure it was a little more enthusiastic than that, but they told him all they had done. They debriefed, right? And Jesus then took them with him, and they withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. Of course, he needed time with them after those experiences. He might have wanted to help them process where they had done well, where they had been turned away. He might have wanted them to rejuvenate their spirits. Christ's work is hard, it takes space. And so they went off for one of those space times that Jesus took. However, as usual, when the crowds found out about it, they followed him. And as usual, Jesus welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who needed to be cured. The day was drawing to a close, and the 12 came to him, and they said, Jesus, send the crowd away. Send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions, for we are here in a deserted place. There are no fast food joints. There's no market square with a lot of extra food at the end of the day. They're concerned. But some of you know this. Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And they looked at Jesus and they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Are you kidding, Jesus? Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And that does not include the women and children. And Jesus made them all sit down. And he, made, he said to the disciples, make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So they did. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples. And he said, set them before the crowd. And he did. And from those five loaves and two fish, all ate and were filled and this to me is the best part. What was left was gathered up and about 12 baskets of broken pieces were gathered up. If that were me, I would freeze it for Thanksgiving stuffing. And you could all have plenty, right? Amazing story. Pray with me for just a minute. Gracious Holy One, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, our rock, our redeemer, amen. So that is a great story, and I know it's not unfamiliar for many of you. It shows up in multiple Gospels. It's slightly different. One time there's 4,000, another time there's five. It may be the same telling. It may not be. 
Folks have wondered, scholars have wondered, well, what really happened here? What is this miracle about? What is this miracle about? Is it, is it that there was a zap moment? A zap moment and Jesus went poof and there was just so much more bread and so much more fish? Is that what happened? Is the miracle perhaps that people took out what was in their pockets or in their satchels and put it all together and wow, it was the best potluck ever? I mean, really, seriously, there are some potlucks that I would say were miraculous. They were amazing and you didn't even plan them. Was it that kind of time? I wanna play with this story for a few minutes and wonder about it, and I hope that's okay with you. I'm gonna invite you to be curious as we try to understand some about this story because I think Jesus was not only a master storyteller, but Jesus was a master storyteller in ways that bring us to the same story, the same text, the same happening many times, only to learn something new when we look at it from a different direction. I'm inviting you to do that with me today, and I'm asking you to engage your imaginations, which you've already had to do a little bit. So let's think about this. The disciples had come back, they were exhausted, I bet they were hungry, they were excited, they'd had a good trip. They had gone out without daddy, and they had done well. I'm sure there was some tough stuff they had to process, but they were all over Jesus, and Jesus said, you know, let's go for a walk. So they went to a private place and they were talking. And as always seems to happen, the crowds found Jesus. His reputation preceded him. They sought him out. They sought him out. And Jesus usually is so kind to them and starts teaching and healing because he knew they needed what he had to share, whether they wanted the fullness of what he had to share or not. And so Jesus taught them, and, and it went on, and it went on, and people were listening, and they were there with their families. And then we're at this place where the sun is beginning to set. And I think alongside of that, the disciples are getting antsy. You know, this was supposed to be our time. Hello? And so they want to know what to do because it's getting to be not only are they hungry, but if they're getting hungry, so is everybody else. So what do we do, Jesus? He says, well, what do you have? And they, like the, like the others could have, they checked their pockets, they checked their robes, and between them they had seven loaves, five loaves, and a few small fish. Five loaves, yes, five loaves, seven loaves, yep, five loaves. One story is seven loaves, and I wrote the wrong number in my notes. There's seven loaves, and I want us to think about those seven loaves. Can you imagine that, that it was Matthew who pulled seven loaves out of his pockets? No, that's between them. So let's pretend that Peter had four loaves somehow. Let's pretend that Matthew only had one, and John had two. We're going with seven loaves. Peter, Matthew, and John each had some loaves. And let's pretend that one of the other disciples had the two fish, because who carries fish? <laughs> we won't go there. It's before coolers, though, I think, or at least before the kind of coolers we have. Let's pretend that when Jesus asked for five or seven or all that they had, that's a safe one, that Matthew had said no, 
that Matthew had thought no and not handed over his loaf when Jesus asked. Can you imagine that? I bet you can. I bet you can. And we're just pretending, so it's okay for us to go on pretending. What if Matthew had hidden his loaf in his clothing and basically then said no when Jesus asked him to feed the crowd? There'd be less loaves than what the story says. Why might he even have considered doing that, you might ask? Why might Matthew have held back? Fear? Lack of trust? A sense of scarcity? Hunger? Maybe Matthew might have held back because he was uncertain what Jesus was going to do. I mean, quite frankly, five, seven, or ten, this is not going to feed 5,000 plus people, Jesus. What are you doing? I want to know a little bit more about what you're attempting to do here before I offer you what's in my pocket. Or maybe Matthew, who'd been there the whole day as well, was really, really hungry. And he was afraid that if he gave Jesus his bread, there wouldn't be enough for him. And he wanted to make sure he got some. We almost couldn't argue that if they'd been there for a whole day. Or maybe Matthew was afraid that he might get some, but there wouldn't be enough for everybody. And what happens when the first two rows get fed and the rest don't? That could be unpretty. Maybe that's what he was worried about. Or maybe Matthew was still a little steamy from the fact that Jesus had taken them out to be with them, the disciples. And here all these people came again and encroached on their time with Jesus. Let them be hungry. Let them leave to get food. It'll give us more time together. Wasn't this supposed to be for us, Jesus? Why would I help them eat? They'll stay longer. Now, if the disciples were like us, any or all of those reasons would be plausible, wouldn't they? And probably some more that that I haven't thought of. And friends, Matthew is no different from us. So what if Matthew had given in to any of those reasons and held back his loaf when Jesus asked? There'd be one less loaf and a few fish. So what would have happened? Where would the story go, is my real question, if Matthew had held back? Would the miracle have happened? With six loaves or four loaves? Would that be enough to feed people? Maybe. Maybe not. Isn't Jesus bigger than one loaf of bread if the goal is to feed all these people? Well, yeah. Of course. But there's something else. If Jesus had gone on to do the miracle and Matthew had held back his loaf, yeah, maybe the miracle would have happened, but Matthew wouldn't have been able to claim a place in it, would he? He would not have been able to go out from that time and tell the story with joy that he had been a part of one loaf of bread multiplied several times, feeding all these thousands of people. He would have had a full belly, but he wouldn't have been able to share the story as his own. You know the difference between telling something that has happened to you that you've been a part of and experiencing that in your 
stomach every time you tell it and telling a story that you've heard from somebody else. Or even worse, when you were almost in the midst of a good story happening, but you were standing on the sideline, second-guessing for too long your participation. That would have been Matthew. That would have been Matthew. But what if Jesus' first concern wasn't to get the crowds fed? What if Jesus' first concern in this whole day was the disciples and teaching them a new lesson? What if feeding the crowd was secondary, even though that's what concerned the disciples? What if instead Jesus' first desire here was for the disciples each and all, each and all to step up and trust and give what they could to the task, to the ask that had come, which was to feed all these people. You with me? What if Jesus really wanted to see if they would offer that limited supply of food that they had? What if Jesus was really wanting them to participate with all they could, to break the bread and fish and share them out, to take the meal that Jesus had prepared and not leave it on the table, but offer it out to each one? What if the story is really about what happens when everybody participates together? Perhaps that's when the miracle happens. What if one of the keys, one of the main keys to living out the kingdom of God is that it never takes just one or two but each and all of us, there's that phrase again, each and all of us together to feed the 5,000 or to stop the war or to take care of a hurricane cleanup or, you know, to build a habitat house that is going to go down into the city and help some folks who need housing or to care for the care for a nursery school that reaches out to the community and to touch those folks who are here in different ways that they might hear about Jesus. What if it takes each and all of us together to do the kingdom work? Isn't that what I said about this offering this morning? It is an offering that is for each congregation and all congregations together. It seems to be a theme as we serve God's kingdom. If that's true, if that's what Jesus was after, then Matthew's holding back one small loaf could have made a difference, couldn't it? People of God, the work, the ministry to which Christ invites us in and beyond the walls of our congregations is necessary for a witness to God and Christ in this world. Lives are changed. Lives are saved. People are healed. Social structures change. God's justice is spoken. The kingdom is made manifest here and now, whether in a meal or in a habitat house. Made manifest through the work we do individually and together in Christ's name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we participate in that work, we too are changed and nurtured and fulfilled. We too, as we participate, there's that koinonia phrase, in Christ's work, in Christ's ministry. Whether it's by giving, offering from our from our resources of money, whether it's by sharing our loaf of bread, our time, our expertise. The kingdom comes, and as we participate, we get to be a part of that with Jesus through the Spirit, even when we don't know that we are. Even when we think all we're doing is emptying what we got in our pockets. 
as this all was going on, we can think of other times when perhaps we have multiplied the bread and the fish to serve a greater good. Ken and I were in an interesting scenario where we got to see all sides of this about 10 years ago. We were in the process of merging our New York congregation with one that was literally a block away. It was crazy that these two churches just sat there side by side. And we went through a process towards merger. It was a long process of testing the waters and trying to move ahead while listening to the Spirit. It was one step forward, two step backward. You can imagine that everyone in the congregations, each one was not sure where or how to go. Oh, we prayed a lot. The time came in the process where the three pastors involved, my husband and I and another man, when we needed to leave so that a new face and a new pastor could care for the merged congregation. They did vote to go forward. And while that was all going on, boy, did folks show their colors. There were some folks right there stepping up and participating, looking ahead in Christ, even when they couldn't exactly see what was coming next. There they were, saying goodbye, wishing us well, and there were others for whom it was all too painful who stepped aside, planning to come back once the goodbyes were said and the dust settled. They couldn't have claimed their place in the hard work. I hope their loaves of bread didn't get stale while they stepped out. But still there were others who absolutely just left as it unfolded. It was too unfamiliar and uncomfortable for them to participate. And I think like the Matthew we imagined they were afraid they wouldn't get what they thought they needed and couldn't let go to allow God to hold them through this process. The hardest thing for me was to see who didn't quite get this participation thing, this koinonia thing, this stepping up and trusting thing, this miracle possibility when we go with God. My prayers are with those who stepped out as much as those who stepped in. Even when we think all we have to offer is one loaf of bread, Jesus makes sure that no one goes hungry. Why care? Why participate? Even when we can't see the future, we do it because we are and have been cared for by a loving and forgiving God who sent us Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who showed us in that that life is the final word, friends. Why care? Why participate? Because if we value and find faithfulness in the work of the saints who have come before us, then like them, we must dive into an act of discipleship that requires our stepping up to take our place among them, stepping up with our giving, our monies, our time, our gifts, our skills. Your giving to this church and your place in its ministries, your using of your times and your talents for reaching others through this congregation and in the community and in the presbytery, maybe in the synod. Those are basic ways that we are able to participate in the work of the kingdom here and now. Yeah, we can think about scarcity, and most of the church is thinking about scarcity more than we should, because with God's abundance, we have enough. We have enough, and we must step up because we're cared for, because God has given us enough, and most importantly, because God needs us to get the work of the kingdom done and the witness of the kingdom out there. God, for whatever reason, needs us, wants us, counts on us for that. 
and if to do and participate and share with what we have because God calls us isn't enough. If that isn't enough, then know that those things that God does through us and through our participating become part of the story that we can own and tell around the campfire, at the kitchen table, in the grocery store, in our offices, our story joined with God's. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those aren't just words that we say each week. They are words that we do. They are words that we are. Amen.